if you're like me, you might have um, some mixed feelings <laughs> about that whole story. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. We're in the midst of a sermon series for Advent called Macro Forces and Micro Responses. And let me share uh, a little bit about the macro force I see in our society of sacrifice zones. Maybe that doesn't make sense, but stick with me. In 1928, the city of Austin, Austin, this area that we live, they released their master plan for development. You can Google it. You know, it's 1928 city of Austin master plan. And in that master plan, they required that all the black communities in Austin, well over a dozen of them, relocate to East Austin, east of I-35. You'll recognize some of the names of these communities. 60 years post-Civil War, these communities included the communities at Pleasant Hill, uh, Clarksville, Kinchianville, Wheatville, Barton Springs, Rainer Branch, Masontown, Robertson Hill, Bell Hill, Burditz Prairie, Red River Street, Westside, Gregorytown, Brackenridge, and Horst's Pasture. I wanted to say all those names, they need to be remembered. These were communities built on former plantations or around business interests or family ties, or simply because it was just too dangerous to live away from the small urban area that Austin was becoming. In 1928, the city decided that they wanted all these different communities uprooted and consolidated in one place in East Austin. They wanted their land and they wanted them out of the way of progress. To coerce them to move, uh, the city said they would only be providing public services and infrastructure like schools and parks for black residents uh, in that part of town. Even There were even threats of cutting off utilities unless you moved. Some held out, but eventually the communities established by these formerly enslaved people largely disintegrated. And they came together in East Austin. The uh, investor and business mind inside of me right now wonders how much would that real estate be worth today if they'd been allowed to stay there? Um, a quick search on Realtor.com reveals that the current median sales price in the Clarksville neighborhood is around $2.4 million. On the other hand, East Austin properties are currently selling for around $600,000, a difference of about 400%. So I'm so tempted to flip over to the comments and just see what you all are saying about this. Why East Austin? Simply, East Austin is what we would call a designated sacrifice zone. That's the macro concept for me to talk about a few minutes this morning, sacrifice zones. By that time, East Austin had already been designated a place for all of the dirty industries for the Austin area. Uh, that's where the sewage facilities were, that's where the factories were, et cetera. Um, in 1930, two years later, the Mueller Airport would open there and who would want to live by an airport? I suppose those who are forced to. A couple years later in 1948, six major petrochemical corporations constructed a 52 acre facility right there in the heart of East Austin, uh, where noxious and dangerous chemicals were stored in these massive, massive tanks. Uh, they were stored there, they were vented there, 
They leaked from there, they leached from there into the air and the soil and the water for the next 40 years until the East Austin community finally organized and protested enough to get the attention of the state to go look what they're doing in our neighborhoods. And finally, the Texas environmental agencies came to take a look. It took 40, 40 years of, of all of this to happen. And when they did, they found that the soil and the underground water had been contaminated uh, so bad, such that 61% of all the water wells they tested in East Austin were contaminated with uh, carcinogens and chemicals. The water quality sampling that they took uh, showed concentrations of cancer-causing chemicals 720 times higher than the federally acceptable level. East Austin is what we'd call a sacrifice zone for the rest of Austin and for Central Texas in general. Will it ever recover? I don't know. Um, I met a guy a couple of months ago while I was touring the Austin food forest, which is it's just a fun place to visit, but he lives in East Austin. He said he can't grow his own food because he's had his soil tested and it's still full of dangerous heavy metals because of uh, the nature of East Austin and, and what happened there. And so he grows mushrooms all over his land because mushrooms will soak up the heavy metals and then he can throw them in the dumpster um, and they get sent to the landfill. And he hopes that maybe one day enough of the chemicals and heavy metals will be removed and he can grow his own food, a basic human, right? Now, I share all this for a couple of reasons, all right? First, it's just good for us to know the history of our place, right? How did East Austin become East Austin? Now you know one of the biggest pieces of that. It, it began in the 1928 city of Austin master plan. So next time you're having an overpriced cocktail in downtown East Austin, uh, think about the history of the place <clears throat> and why you're sitting in a hip post-industrial setting. Oh, that's why this is here. Second, I just want us to have an awareness of the concept of sacrifice zones as we navigate our lives and our, and our choices. I want us to be able to ask the question of ourselves, what does the Christian practice of love look like in a world that creates sacrifice zones? We're in the season of Advent. This is technically a penitential season. It's a season um, of reflection an acknowledgement of where and how we might cause harm and what repentance and change and growth might look like from that new awareness. Our gospel reading this morning, I read it a minute, minute ago. It's a story, among other things, about Joseph's ethical dilemma. Will Joseph choose uh, the socio-cultural expectation placed on him to dissociate with an impure woman Mary, condemning her to public shame, to ostracize her, to condemn her to a short, hard life of subsistence living, most likely via the profession of prostitution? Will he choose that? Or will he protect her from that? I think of Mary as existing in a sacrifice zone space. Will Joseph sacrifice her for the sake of his reputation, and his standing in the community? Or will he be aware of the cost of his choices that she will have to bear? Mary, in my mind, 
is not unlike the character Fantine in that famous French classic, Les Mis. Fantine, a young girl, naive and innocent, falls into a love affair with a rich young man who ultimately leaves her alone and pregnant. Like Mary, she's an unwed expecting mother. Side note, I once was preaching in an Air Force chapel service at Christmas time, and from the pulpit, I called Mary uh, an unwed teen mother, and I paused, like you're supposed to do after you've said something important, to see if it would sink in and what in the reaction, and it was dead silent for several seconds, awkwardly silent. Everyone was clearly unsure of what to make about what I just said, until one woman in the second row yelled out, yes, <laughs> and it echoed through the chapel. And I thought, okay, that was gospel. That was good news to that one woman right there. <laughs> Everyone else is unsure what to do with this. I'm going to let them sit with that. Anyway, Fantine, her unwed pregnancy causes her downfall and she's fired from her job and she's forced to be a prostitute to support herself and her daughter. And in my mind, Fantine will forever be the Mary that might have been character. This is how Mary's story might have gone. And in a way, she's a stand-in for all women who exist in the sacrifice zone of our society, uh, where we are obsessed with purity and controlling women's bodies. In our text, Mary is kept out of the sacrifice zone, uh, but it took an act of God. It took an angel to intervene to get Joseph to marry her. I do judge Joseph a little bit for this. I, again, I have mixed feelings about this text. Uh, I judge him a little, but I judge the society more and I judge us more because we have these macro forces in our societies, which we identify classes of people to sacrifice and to scapegoat as if they were the problem and they need to be the bearers of the problem. Again, our theme this fourth week of Advent is love. Love. What is love? Love is that orientation toward another where you want their best, not their happiness or success, not to exploit or coerce them, not for you to feel something from them or their actions, but for them to flourish. That's what love is. Love is that orientation toward another where you support their flourishing. This is the Christian concept of love. And I wish, I wish every time the word love was written in our Bible, it had an asterisk by it. Because we so often think of uh, love as something sentimental or a feeling, and we don't think of it in terms of another person's flourishing. What does this flourishing kind of love look like amidst the macro force of sacrifice zones in our world? Let me just give a few examples and then a few responses, and I'll wrap up here. The typical American consumer, us, benefits tremendously from the sacrifice zones here in the United States and around the world. Here's a few examples. You already know that Americans consume more than any other nation in the world. Although we are 4% of the world's population, we consume 15 to 30% of its natural resources, more than any other nation. It's said that if the rest of the world were to consume like Americans, we would need 4.2 Earths just to, just to sustain that consumption level. In a way, the rest of the world is a sacrifice zone for our 
consumption habits. This produces an enormous amount of trash. In 1980, the average American disposed of 60 pounds of plastic per year. By 2018, it had become 218 pounds. <laughs> From 60 to 218 pounds of plastic per American each year. Some of that plastic is recycled. I know it makes us feel so good to put that in the recycling bin. Uh, but now, you know, journalist after journalist, story after story is saying, you know, most of that really isn't recycled. All that's getting recycled is about 5%. Most of it ends up in the world's poorest countries like Bangladesh, uh, Laos, Ethiopia, Senegal, because labor there is inexpensive and the environmental regulations are very lax. And so a lot of our recycled plastic ends up burned, buried, or piled up in those countries. City on a hill, in light of the world, we hardly are. <laughs> to places like this, uh, places like these sacrifice zones where all of our trash goes. Domestically, these plastics are produced in places like what's called Cancer Alley in Louisiana. It's a stretch of the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that got the nickname because of the concentration of petrochemical companies right there uh, in that stretch. And one community there in Cancer Alley has a risk of cancer 50 times the national average, the highest in the country. You see an unseen cost of my driving, my home's high energy needs, my consumption choices and habits is borne by my neighbors in Louisiana. They are a sacrifice zone for my habits. But it's not just oil and gas and plastics. Uh, I think of Trump, who was elected in some ways because, don't, don't get out the pitchforks right now, don't be mad at me. He was elected in some ways because he gave voice to, to some of the folks in some of the sacrifice zones of our society. Think of the manufacturing that used to be in places like Hamden, New Jersey, but it's no longer there. It's been completely outsourced overseas uh, where we have exported all of our opportunities for hands-on work to places like that. You go to Camden, New Jersey now, you'll find endless uh, streets of empty brick factories, windowless and employeeless. And a lot of the stuff that we fill our homes with now is affordable only because it's being made by people elsewhere who do it for pennies on the dollar while their local environment is polluted. Now, I'm not trying to make us all feel bad this morning. You, you may be feeling some guilt. That's not my goal. It's just that if we're going to be a people of love, we have to think about who exists in the sacrifice zones that bear the cost of our choices. Let me, let me just give a few more examples, then I'm going to wrap up. I think of the mining communities in our country and around the world. And I think of this huge push to electrify our society with solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. But what we don't see are the sacrifice zones where one, for example, one electric vehicle battery, it's a thousand pounds typically, a thousand pound electric vehicle battery requires the removal and processing of 500,000 pounds of earth to create that 1,000 pound electric battery. It has to be dug up, has to be transported, has to be refined, all the different minerals in there has to be somehow put together. So 
to get a thousand pound battery, you have to remove 500,000 pounds of minerals from the ground. You have to do mountaintop removal. You have to completely destroy these communities where these people are doing the mining. Um, again, to mention Trump, and I, I might get fired for this this morning, but he was elected from sacrifice zones like this, where entire communities are disrupted and streams polluted just to make us feel better about our consumerism, just to greenwash our consumption patterns. Again, my intent is not to overwhelm us, but instead that we might make awake, aware, and mi mindful micro-level choices in light of these macro-level forces, forces that we couldn't stop, we can't change even if we wanted to but we can still make small choices at our own level. Here's three small ideas. First, what if rather than greenwashing our consumption patterns, what if we simply consumed less? What if we practice the Christian disciplines of simplicity and contentment? I know, I know that's as bad to consider and say as Joseph marrying a young woman pregnant with someone else's baby, I know. These things shouldn't be said or done, right? In America, where private consumption is 70% of our domestic economy. So I'm literally advocating for a recession here. If our economy is 70% our spending, you know, and I'm saying, stop, we are killing our world. We're sacrificing very real communities to keep living like we're living. You know, I get it, there are consequences for that. I think of the saying, it's attributed to Gandhi, but supposedly it came from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton first. She said, live simply so that others may simply live. It's a beautiful saying. I think of it daily. So that's number one. What if we just consume less? Number two, can you consume more locally? The for example, uh, one way we've, we've tried to do this this year is the little bit of beef that my family eats. We buy in bulk from KNC Cattle Company, a local rancher who uses sustainable and eco-friendly agriculture and ranching practices. The 20 pound box of pasture raised, rotationally grazed ground beef that we buy, it actually costs less than if we were to go buy the same thing from HEB, but that's not the point. The point is I know that their operation isn't cramming cattle into an industrial feedlot, many of which I'm familiar with having gone to school in the Great Plains, you know, north of Lubbock. Uh, where it is nasty, you know, and I know that neighbors near them are being harmed with dust and odors and mountains of manure. Uh, but I know that this local rancher whom I'm developing a relationship with, I know that they aren't monoculturing and overgrazing their land. I know that they aren't harming their neighbors. Look, I still get way too many of my goods on Amazon, but this is a start for me right here. I'm trying to live locally. So first, consume less. Second, consume locally. And third, consume together. Consume together. Talk about your intentional, mindful consumption with each other. Collaborate with friends and family and have values-led conversations. An example that we tried this year was rather than buying Christmas gifts for our nephews, we took them bowling. We said, let's, let's do something relational. We didn't say this, but I could say, what act of love might we do that contributes to their flourishing? Bowling together probably does that better than buying them something plastic from Walmart. Also, I'm trying to make or re-gift items for friends that I'm giving gifts to this year. Notice I said I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. 
forget perfection, forget solving, forget fixing. Even the title of this whole sermon series uh, points to what we're trying to say. There's an admission here that there are macro level forces that we can't change, but we can still make micro level decisions that align with our faith and our practices of peace, hope, joy, and love. It's a journey I'm on. It's a journey we're all on together. And I'm grateful to be in a community where we can talk about these really challenging things together. And we can be critical toward ourselves about that with the goal of being more faithful, with the goal of figuring out how can we contribute to the flourishing of our neighbors and our world together. May God continue to give us courage, creativity, and grace as we do so. Amen.